Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. About a year ago, Noah Ballard and myself, Chance Solon Pfeiffer, the hosts of this podcast, Be Real Guys, we attempted something that our friends and family advised us never to do again, especially in their vicinity, especially on a weekend right. meant for family. <laughs> and that's something. Right, because it like pisses them off twofold. It's like, A, they have to probably watch the movies adjacent to us because we're going to be watching them when instead we should be helping them like make Thanksgiving dinner. And then they have to listen to the podcast because they love us. And that's what people who love us do. But we did it again. (laughs) That year ago when our reach exceeded our grasp, we were reviewing six movies, three pairs of action movie twins made in the same year about the same subjects. And we're at it. Once more for the Megapod volume. Absolutely. Uh, Here we are. And, you know, I feel like I, if I want to do like a blanket genre over this one, instead of just action movies, it's six movies about men failing to communicate effectively with another, with one another, their feelings. (laughs) And I think it fits over our septet or sextet, um, which is. What did you just say to me? (laughs) Which is uh, Wyatt Earp and Tombstone from 1993 and 1994 about the life and times of the uh uh kansas and arizona lawman on the uh on the great plains in the wild west uh 2005 and 2006 capote and infamous about the writing of truman capote's in cold blood and uh 2006 movies about uh magicians uh two warring amongst themselves in christopher nolan's the prestige and one warring with the uh the aristocracy of Austria in The Illusionist. Right. We're going to begin with Wyatt Earp and Tombstone. I think that's the only way to start, and Chance and I are pretty revved up already because we already recorded this, except for Chance who did Oh my gosh, and I'm so sorry about it, and we're going to go so fast, and we're going to bring twice the Honestly, energy, twice I'm... the insight. Absolutely. Every, it's a tabula rasa over here with with both of these. I could, I'm going to take a completely different position are on you? one of them. I may. I just may. All right. We're going to start with 1993's Tombstone, uh, a movie that I grew up with and uh, I think maybe taught Noah something when he watched it for the first time this past week. Well, yeah. I mean, it was so interesting hearing the conversation that you and Grace are going to have in a little while talking about this movie because I didn't have – I mean, I knew this movie existed. I didn't know it was about Wyatt Earp. I assumed like when people talked about Tombstone, they were actually talking about The Quick and the Dead. (laughs) Um, Nice. Is that what is, I don't even I don't even remember the plot of that movie either. The Quick and the Dead like is Sharon Stone surrealist Sam Raimi uh, gunfight contest, and Great. I would say Tombstone is imbued with like a little bit of that energy. It lands nicely between Wyatt Earp and The Quick and the Dead. Yeah, well, it's sort of like this weird historical movie, but then like Kurt Russellified, so it just becomes an action movie, yeah. like with some guideline about like what actually Absolutely. happened. Um, I compared it earlier to um, like a cool history teacher, like maybe not a smart one, but like a cool one, <laughs> the one you like hanging out with. 
And whereas Wyatt Earp is ultimately, like, the teacher who's actually giving you the facts, but, like, it's not terribly interesting. Right, right. It's very true. So Tombstone picks up with the the life of this uh, lawman who is already famous by this point for his work in Dodge City, trying to have a second act of his life. He moves to this uh, silver mine boom town in Arizona with his brothers. Uh, the titular Tombstone. With Virgil and Morgan, played by Sam Elliott and Bill Paxton, respectively, and all of their wives. They quickly encounter, uh, as Robert Mitchum tells us in the uh, opening narration, the earliest form of organized crime in America. This gang called the Cowboys, they wear these red sashes, led by Curly Bill Brocious, uh, played by Powers Booth, and his uh, younger brother uh, Ringo, who's a gunslinger, and uh, Michael B. from the first Terminator movie, and from Aliens. He and Bill Paxton right. have a history of acting poorly together, um, right? In big budget action films, right? Um, so yeah, they're just looking to uh, make a buck in this town, unlike one of the last frontiers in America, and it quickly becomes clear. Um, because men just cannot let other men lie that uh, they need to bring down the iron hand of the law on this uh, on this group called the Cowboys. And uh, they're joined by a former compatriot of Earps, Doc Holliday, played here by Val Kilmer, who is... Is played the right word, or maybe you're looking for embodied? Li- lived. <laughs> He's lived out by Val Do- Kilmer. Uh, yeah, Val Kilmer, believing he is Doc Holliday, saunters onto the screen. yes. He is half dead. He's the Huckleberry he to all of sweating. us. He is sweating profusely in every single scene of this movie. Yeah. And he is literally a, like in a different color palette than yeah. every other human on the screen. Like a melting wax statue, my sister said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know Daisy. No Daisy at all. Um, let's, uh, <laughs> should we hear Grace Solemn Pfeiffer? I would love nothing more. Let's do it. It was a place where a man could start over, where a fortune could be made. They say every town has a story. Tombstone has a legend. Who is he? That's Wider. Better name for himself as a peace officer. I heard of you. I'm retired. You must be Doc Holliday. You retired too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Can we set up what this movie means to us? Yes, I was planning on it. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) This movie means everything to us. That's as good a place to start as any. Uh, Welcome to a special guest segment of The Megapod, Volume 2. As you know by now, listener, one of the six films we're discussing is 1993's Tombstone. And uh, with me in my apartment in Portland, perhaps the biggest tombstone devotee that I know, uh, it's my sister, GSP. Thanks for doing the show. Very happy to be here. Are you? Very happy to be here, yeah. You really complete the circle, by the way, of Ballard, Solemn Pfeiffer family members who've done the show, so you're a holdout. Um, But you held out for the right time, because this is not some, like, random, just come on the podcast and watch a movie and demonstrate your analytical powers no i would never accept such an offer what is your history with this movie this was the first r-rated movie i ever saw yeah at age when when does a child develop like memory 
uh, four? four or five. Four or five? Yeah. Four or five, then. So one of the... What are, what are some images burned into your memory? Well, famously, famously, our mother would fast forward the beginning of this. Yeah. Um, thinking maybe that that was the only reason this is R-rated was the, the very opening sequence of this movie where yeah. like a wedding is ambushed. Right. Um, so I've probably seen this movie like 25 times, but right. I've seen that opening scene like five times yeah sometimes i still fast forward it i'm like this isn't canon uh, so that's the history <laughs> can you describe or assess what a what a emotional balm this movie is to you during the recent election or was during the recent election <laughs> yes so <laughs> the movie about cowboys just massacring each other this movie we found out uh, while my mother and my best friend and I were watching election coverage, we started um, flipping around to see what else was live on TV, which I've never done before, and we found this. So we started um, flipping back and forth between Tombstone and uh, my worst nightmare. Um, and so, uh, but relatively speaking, this this movie about gun gunfighters was yes. so much more calming to you then oh yeah so so calming the that the next day i after i got off work i just went home and watched it again because now this movie will forever remind me of a time before yeah. um it's real comfort. before florida <laughs> it's real comfort food it's a lot it's a cinematic laudanum to you <laughs> <laughs> yes all right so you mentioned that we've probably seen this movie upwards of 20 times right growing up did we think it was good yes okay i think so <laughs> uh-huh yeah we've always sort of understood that that val kilmer performance is like iconic so good and yeah. i remember being rattled to my core when i realized that the same person who played wyatt earp starred in big trouble in little china that yeah. was i didn't understand how someone who was in this sorry for doing that to you yeah. In reality, isn't this movie pretty all over the map? Yes. In the performances, in the directing choices, like high ceiling, low basement, as they say. Do you think the Russell performance is good? It is, I think, for the most part. I think the performance is good. I think the character is... I don't think the character is given as much interesting things to say or do as uh doc holiday right but i think and you might disagree with me on this there are some moments where he really pulls it off in some scenes like there's lots of shouting to the heavens scenes oh, which yeah. are bold moves that i i buy it you tell him i'm coming yeah. hell's coming with me yeah the scene where did he, you hear me <laughs> hell's, hell's coming, coming with, with me, me. <laughs> Or, like, storming out into the night, staring at your own blood-covered hands in the rain, in the rain and just yeah. screaming. And I'm with him. And I, I, they're big gambles, but it does not suspend. I, I stay suspended in the story in that yeah. moment. Um, and that's a very Kurt Russell thing, I think, to... Oh, absolutely. I don't think many other people could repeat the line hell's coming with me twice and keep me on board yeah it's what makes him a, like a prince of the bad good genre mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i wish 
So I'll can I'm just gonna jump in to my biggest issue with this movie. How about it, man? Which is that I hate the women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if this the, movie... you're the kind of guest we've been avoiding having on Be Real Guys for as long as we can. Oh, woman. We're, we're <laughs> no, we're self-conscious. <laughs> I am. Okay, that's not true because I'm a huge apologist for Wyatt Earp's laudanum addicted wife maddie yes love her explain the other day you said that she was like your role model yeah, or she's something she's so funny <laughs> no she's I, not there's nothing funny about this sad I ass actually, okay so first of all i think her performance is pretty good considering she's just like supposed to like have her eyes watering in every scene yeah yeah um i think that I guess I'm so fascinated at, like, how they try to make us hate her to justify this fling with Josephine. Josephine. While Josephine is the worst. I hate every moment that she is on screen. So this movie would be vastly improved by removing the love story altogether and investing that time more into exploring the relationship between Holiday and Earp but also the brothers and they they follow a lot they follow a wide breadth of men and their relation and their code of honors in this yeah they're doing trying to do a lot from like the gay cowboy who falls in love with the visiting theater performer to McMaster's who's a cowboy with a sense of justice when the line is crossed yeah and all of that is and maybe they do too much of that but all of that is so much more interesting yeah. than this completely unbelievable plotline between Josephine and Wyatt. This movie is all about like men trying to like understand each other in the context of aggression, even in like a literary way. Like before Earp goes to fight Ringo, he talks to Doc Holliday. He's just like, "What is what makes a man like Ringo?" Right. Like, there's a lot of observation happening among these characters. And that brings me back to the beginning scene where, you know, he's the first scene where we see him slap uh, that cowboy out of the saloon. Yeah. And that. Billy Bob Thornton. And again, like, the triumph of that scene is just him sizing up Billy Bob Thornton as fearful. And I guess that's. (laughs) (laughs) Tells Tells him to, quote, skin that smoke wagon, see what happens. And what's the one after that? Throw down, boy. There's another one. There's like three of them where like the writers couldn't decide which. Uh... Skin that pistol and throw down, boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I like to think they couldn't decide whether they were going to call it like a smoke wagon <laughs> or tell them to throw down. And oh they're like, God. we'll just do them all really fast in a row. But like, what if that guy had just been willing to pull the gun? Yeah. I... Wyatt Earp's skill seemingly is just sizing up other people great point looking at mouth twitches before someone shoots right uh do you have uh, any favorite quotes that you wrote down this time you have a note page you're reading off of that i believe just says laudanum at the top <laughs> so. in capital letters any quotes that you need to get off your chest real quick um it's mostly things josephine said that yeah. i <laughs> hated uh-huh um one of my favorite scenes in this movie that we talked about is this, the dying, the scene in which Doc Holliday is dying. Yeah. And I am just enchanted by the little backstory that they give at the end specific to Doc Holliday's 
tragic young romance. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I just, I like where it comes in the movie. I, it's just enough explanation of why he might be, I am a sucker for having a really eccentric character and then giving us not quite as much backstory as we want, but just a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, it's a good technique. And I like where it comes at the movie in the falling action. Yeah. And uh, that, I guess, is what I'm saying I want more of for Ringo, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I love that scene. That's a good... That like struck it. me on this watching was how much I loved that scene. I, we talked about it in the kitchen when we had the movie paused. I'll probably rate this on my own with Noah. But the big question is, is this movie good good or bad good? <laughs> Because it flirts so hard with both categories. It fully embraces both categories. That's true. For me, the defining moment of this movie are the two unforgivable moments of slow motion that come out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. They completely ruin the suspension of reality. Yeah. So I think if I was going to pitch this to a friend, I would say this movie is bad good. Yeah. And then the friend would say, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and you'd say, listen to this podcast that no one listens to, but that I've guessed it on. Um, I would say it is bad good with like a, a couple really good performances. Yeah. I think that that's a good way to say it. So if you're introducing it to a total stranger... You say it's bad, good, but like, look how it has some great moments as opposed to, no, this is great. I'm going to apologize for like some unforgivable shit. (laughs) You'd rather come at it from that way? Yeah, I think so. All right. This has been Tombstone. GSP, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And your many indulgences. (laughs) (laughs) This was so much fun. All right. Just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. (laughs) Is that a fact? Yeah, that's a fact. Well, for a man that don't go healed, you run your mouth kind of reckless, don't you? No need to go healed to get the bulge on a tub like you. Is that a fact? Mm. That's a fact. Well, I'm real scared. Damn right you're scared. I can see that in your eyes. All right, man, go ahead. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. You compared this movie to a cool history teacher. It is, I think, very proud of some of its uh, historical fidelity. Some of Kilmer's lines are like real Doc Holliday quotes that he pulled out for God knows why. Like, it's not necessary. Well, no other. Well, that's ultimately like what, if we can now talk post grace about like, you know, what's questionable in this movie. And I think what is questionable is the ethos the actors are bringing to this performance. Uh So on one hand you have Val Kilmer, who's like giving it his Daniel day Lewis best. And you have, um, Stephen Lang, like opposite him giving it his wackiest best, giving it his best Michael Shannon. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) Then you have, like, Michael Bean trying pretty hard. You have Powers Booth trying pretty hard. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, you have, like, Bill Paxton, who is one of the worst actors maybe working today. Um, 
you have Kurt Russell, who's never been in a movie labeled drama before. Right. And uh, if I can try to summarize what I think you're saying, I think what is both and this plays well into our podcast. What I think is both bad and good about this movie is it had this troubled production because it was like a Kevin Costner thing that he abandoned and then went to go do Wyatt Earp and then like Tombstone had a really hard time getting the actors it wanted. So I think the mentality taken toward it with Kurt Russell having a huge hand in the creative process at a certain point was that they just took 20 character actors, some of whom weren't great, and they were like, listen, you see Russell and Kilmer over there? They're about to give this their all. You do the same. And everyone <laughs> you best tried, do but likewise, <laughs> boy. <laughs> but their all is simply like not something that is given in a good movie. I bet I could just see them at like craft services, like between takes, you know, like Kurt Russell and Sam Elliott. And Sam Elliott like looks over and goes, man, Val's really giving it his all, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that that actually plays itself out nicely because you have this idea that doc holiday is sort of like this subversive singular force as a character like um for all these people they look at him and they're just like you know the the former lawmen look at him and they're like "Ooh, doc's like a character i don't know if i want to be associated with and like these tough gross uneducated cowboys look at him and they think like uh what a strange talk and sissy and that really works because Kilmer is not like anyone else in the movie. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a bolder film. But I think both of these films suffer from the fact that fundamentally the Wyatt Earp story is not that interesting. So right. what you have to change to make it interesting, like sort of cripples it. I mean, it's like what you kind of like about bad, good movies chances that like they sort of like fall apart under their own weight and just sort of like dissolve into montages, which this one does. So yeah, there's a lot to watch, a lot to pay attention to. It's a good action movie. The gunfight at the OK Corral is entertaining. If um, a little bit mo- quick. Yeah. Uh, the montages, even though they're sort of like happening, like completely on a figurative level where right. Wyatt Earp like walks toward the camera shooting at the dusk, yeah. the friscalating dusk light. Um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, it gets silly. So probably bad. Good. I'm going to go ahead and give it a soft, bad, bad. How dare you? And this, by the way, I can tell you, cause I'm looking in Noah's eyes on Skype right now. He is punishing me for not recording the first run. I'm going to give it a soft, bad, bad. I don't think the movie has like so a big much. enough climax. I think like the Val Kilmer, Michael Bean standoff is like pretty anticlimactic ultimately. No, it's not. And I think the dance, like the dancing in the street and the sanitarium scenes just like don't add up to me to like a satisfying ending that I learned something about this protagonist. So, while the Val Kilmer and certain other weird performances in this gave it like some sort of fun thing to like look forward to, ultimately, I thought the movie was kind of a slog. Hell's coming with me on this one, Noah. This is this is just blatant vitriol for me for getting to record. No, no, I mean I've had a chance to reconsider through. since we recorded. No, you and you're a real bastard. I think it might be so- I, soft, a soft bad bad, but I think that- What do you think, audience? Should I hate him? I think I hate him. <laughs> this movie is entertaining as hell. I watch it once every two years. I mean, if Maybe you grew you make up that watching this movie, I think this movie's entertaining as hell. But if you did not grow up watching this movie and you come into it cold at 28 years or later, this is not a great movie. 
We move now to Wyatt Earp, 1994, Lawrence Kasdan, starring uh, Kevin Costner as, would you like to say another? Oh, the titular Wyatt? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, this one is a true cradle-to-grave uh, biopic from a running-through-the-corn-as-a-teenager overture. Um, Basically the Shawshank Redemption theme. To a, uh, like, a 30 years later fishing boat in Alaska epilogue. Right. Um, yeah, this is pro- one of the more traditionally mapped biopics I've ever seen about someone who doesn't have a great arc to his life. I gotta tell you something, Wyatt. I told your brothers when they went off to fight, and I suppose the time has come for you. You know, I'm a man that believes in the law. After your family, it's about the only thing you got to believe in. But there are plenty of men who don't care about the law. Men who will take part in all kinds of viciousness. Don't care who gets hurt. When you find yourself in a fight with such viciousness, hit first if you can. And when you do hit, hit to kill. It gets you in pretty rough and you're just like, oh God, like... I know that Kevin Costner's the lead in this, and we're starting with him as like a much younger man. Like I'm in for something serious here, but they're using it yeah. to like further Gene Hackman, who like right. is not really in this movie anyway. So I don't understand like why they spend like a good half an hour on him. But he's also the only interesting thing in the first hour. Well, I think the production crew of Tombstone realized that Wyatt Earp's like early life is not that interesting. You have to pick up when he is like a lawman already or when he's post-lawman because that's the most interesting part about him, not the his like sort of weird upbringing with these like weird this migrant fa- like this you know, he's got Gene Hackman says that he has this thing in his genes where he like has to keep moving. And so, like, something about that, like, leads to him being, you know, wanting to find a home and, like, marrying this woman, and then she dies, and then, like, he burns the house down and becomes, like, a horse thief, but then, like, his dad's like, what are you doing? He's like, ugh, and then, like, he becomes a lawman. (laughs) But, like, that's not a very interesting, like, we didn't need an hour of that. Costner's this sort of actor who I only really want to watch in a movie like JFK, where someone like Oliver Stone has an idea of what Kevin Costner will bring to the movie, and they're kind of using it against him a little bit, and Costner's not quite, does, maybe doesn't know that. Right. Um, a little bit like we talked about with Wahlberg and Boogie Nights. But this, but Costner's at the helm of this movie. He brought Kasdan in to write it. He wanted this to be the life and times of Wyatt Earp. Right. And the level of ego that he brings to the part in right. addition to his lack of self-awareness, is unbearable, especially right. when he's playing a young man. Well, that's the interesting thing about these two movies. And these two movies were made at the same time. And in fact, Kevin Costner was cast as the Kurt Russell uh, Wyatt Earp and then dropped out right. and then said, fuck it, I'm making my own Wyatt Earp movie. And then, yeah, enlisted mm-hmm. Lawrence Kasdan to do this. And they originally pitched it as, what, a miniseries? And then all the studios yeah. were like, how about just like a long movie? And boy, did they get a long movie. Um, they sure did. They got one to the tune of three, so, hour, like, three it, hours and ten minutes that lost $40 million. But this one is so, like, whereas Tombstone, like, really, like, can't be bothered with, you know, exposition of any kind. This movie <laughs> is just, like, so committed to the history of it. But, it, like, it, who cares? Like, nobody wants to watch the PBS special of this guy who, like, frankly, no. wasn't that interesting and then, frankly, like, did a lot of... Sh- put his family through a lot of shitty things and was, like, kind of terrible to women. Yeah. 
the actors are all like, you know, trying not to like outshine Kevin Costner, who doesn't have a whole lot of range, <laughs> which is hard not to do. Right. But they're all like kind of afraid of him. So that just means you have all these villains who are kind of just like extras who you don't really recognize, despite yeah. the fact that this movie's like the better part of four hours long. Well, so it's interesting because these movies have similar crazy depth and number of characters in the cast. But in Tombstone, it was very much everyone except Kilmer hitting the same notes of aggression and intensity. And in this one, I mean, you've got Hackman, you've got Mark Harmon, you've got Michael Madsen, you've got Pullman, you've got Dennis Quaid, Isabella Rossellini, Sizemore, so many people. But I think in this movie, the only common page that they're on is that, like, they're a little scared of the source material. Because, like, Costner's, like, looking over their shoulder being like, do this right. Do history right. You missed a word there. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to my script. Right. We're starting over. And it's a waste of Kasdan in the sense, like, when you hear Wyatt Earp biopic and Lawrence Kasdan, you'll at least think interesting dialogue scene to scene. I've seen The Big Chill. I've seen Empire Strikes Back. When two people get in a room, I expect a little bit of crackle. And that's not the case here. You, we, we talked earlier, this movie endeavors to say a whole lot about brotherhood. And yet you don't believe that any of the people on screen have any camaraderie whatsoever. Right. Which Tombstone has that. Yeah. And it's funny, like the lines aren't like the the lines in Tombstone are a bit more fun, if like a bit like goofy Mm -hmm. and non-specific and just like an (laughs) abstraction. Whereas like this movie, the like laudanum wife of, uh, Wyatt Earp, who in the in Tombstone is just portrayed as basically the villain of the film, and in this one has a little bit more depth to her, but she right. still like has the line like "I'm not sleeping here with your heeb whore," you know about like the Jewish like uh, mistress that he has. Like, I mean, yeah, it's pretty like this movie definitely thinks it's like very serious. Uh, quickly, Dennis Quaid's uh, portrayal of Doc Holliday. Well, I think it's interesting, like I was saying earlier, with Val Kilmer and with Tombstone, they're playing with the idea of, like, sexuality and gender and stuff like that. So there's, like, a a few interesting sort of nods at these men's homophobia. Like, even in, like, they they sort of blame the inciting incident of the uh, Tombstone OK Corral shootout on basically Val Kilmer, like, flirting with Thomas Hayden Church, and that's, like... Totally. Whereas Dennis Quaid is, like, afraid to do anything other than, like, I'm very heterosexual, but, like, a tiny bit quirky. Did you hear that I was a dentist? How are your teeth? <laughs> His cough is so deep. And I think, I mean, considering how much I just love the the Kilmer-Russell on-screen relationship, in the opening scene with Dennis Quaid playing Doc Holliday, he's just like, do you know the meaning of friendship, Wyatt Earp? But it's just not as, like, physical, you know? This is an easy bad bad for me. I mean, I know it's in the style of good bad, but it's an easy bad bad. <laughs> um, and don't you come on? I think if Tombstone didn't exist, it would probably be good bad for me. But because okay. it does, and because I've seen it, I'm gonna have to say that it's also like a soft bad bad. All right, on to the story of In Cold Blood. I would love that. Which film would you like to start with capote or infamous can we start with capote and then go to infamous sure let's do it um 
So 2005's Capote was quite heralded when it came out. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman won the Oscar for Best Actor uh, for playing the titular role of of Truman Capote. It is directed by Bennett Miller, who's been at the helm for several... um, uh, money, well yeah, money slightly ball, Oscar baby movies, yeah, um, and yeah, this is the late fifties, early sixties. It is uh, Truman Capote writing about um, or going to Kansas to to meet with uh, Perry Smith and Dick Hickok uh, and do the ex- like extensive taxing research and uh, invent the nonfiction novel and and write in cold blood. And I think the movie realizes that very quickly that this movie hangs in, I mean, its title character. It is called Capote because it is about Truman Capote and his ups and downs and his idiosyncrasies. But ultimately, like, you have to, you have to love him by the end no matter what. Because he's going to do some shitty things, but you ultimately need to, like, be there with him. At least fascinated. And at least fascinated by him. And it starts out by showing you these, like, little tricks he pulls on people and how cute he can be just for fun. You know, like, the thing of him tipping the porter to, like, pretend he recognized Truman Capote just to, like, fuck with Harper Lee and stuff like that. But ultimately, because who you're ultimately dealing with is a pretty eccentric, pretty selfish human being. It's going to show you reasons that, like, we need people like this and why this person is still great despite himself. And that's the goal of the movie instead of some arbitrary, like, finding an arbitrary plot within the context of either the court case or the publish- the publication of the book. Yeah, that's been really hard for Danny. Oh, it's the hardest when someone has a notion about you and it's impossible to convince them otherwise. Because since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pegged because of the way I, the way I am, you know, the way I talk, and and they're always wrong. You know what I mean? I watched Infamous first, I should say. I did too. I found it to be, in comparison, kind of forcefully blank. Like, I think this movie approaches... I think it looks at Capote in much the same way that he must have looked at those killers. They are mysterious to him and they can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And this movie sort of leaves that well, to that's the thing. you. This movie asks the same question. I think that's really smart. This movie asks the same question of Capote of why, of what he asked the killers and it's why did you do it? Yeah. yeah. And ultimately the answer that they we the audience get is the same as what Capote gets, which is sort of like being horrified at the fact that like he, these are guys just are just humans who are back against a wall, and then like something happened and they couldn't really explain it, but they did it, and now they got to live with the consequences. Whereas he, on the other side, decided to write this article one day that turned into this story that turned into this book, and he didn't know why, but he just became obsessed with it. Yeah. On a very similar page, I would want to say that I think Capote, there is something about, we'll talk about the Hoffman performance in a minute, but so Daniel Craig plays Perry Smith in Infamous, and you are very aware the entire time that it is Daniel Craig, 
And uh, Clifton Collins Jr., who's relative to Daniel Craig, completely unknown, uh, right. playing Perry Smith. And a completely different physical type. Yes. You look at the people in Capote, and I think it better fits the thesis of In Cold Blood, which is that like all of these people are more the same than they are different. And right. So this heinous act did come out of nowhere, from what I can tell. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I like the fact that... Weirdly, Capote does not make the argument that Capote was in love with Perry Smith. Right. Whereas Infamous does make the argument that they were like in love with each other. Very much so. But really, Capote argues that Perry was just the nut he couldn't crack until the end. And that's the reason he gave up on Dick so quickly is because he offered up all the information quickly. He's a simple person. Mm -hmm. So... On Hoffman's Oscar-winning performance, I wonder if part of that is that it's a really good performance against all odds, because especially after watching Infamous and then like watching some like Truman Capote on the Dick Cavett show, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a, a large man, right? A waspy-looking man, right? Um, he doesn't really look or move like Truman Capote, right? And it's especially the movement. Like if you watch, I think if I want to if I want to give Toby Jones credit for anything, it's that Truman Capote is five three, and so the way that he would like pick up and move through a room, and had his very uh, special eccentric a word he hated um, way of getting in people's faces, um, that's much different than what PSH does. Right, PSH is and even his tactics like as the Truman Capote character to connect with other people is very different. With yeah. Then, like in so for PSH, the more important thing I think about his performance is showing us what Truman Capote did when he was alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I think that is his process is thinking about like yes, he was a very like flamboyant guy and he was always telling stories about people, but ultimately his genius came not from that but from being alone in his creative times. Whereas Infamous argues the other thing was that it was that he was a socialite was the reason he was brilliant. At some point, I have to say, I think that that takes a turn for me. I think. And it's, it's more, I think more a problem I think I have with Bennett Miller when I look at the movies Moneyball and Foxcatcher, he, he makes these movies that have these like interesting protagonists. And at some point I think they all kind of end up in the same, uh, like meditating in silence on like what it is to be an ambitious, like dark hearted right. man Right. that I think is, there's something that infamous I think knew about like what it was to be performative and how even false performative lifestyle deconstructed could still be real. That felt wise to me. And I think this movie does like bank a little bit more on like, you know, he's just a guy who like drinks alone and he's sad and he's a great writer. It hits, it hits some note for me there. That's like not that interesting at the end. Interesting. See, I thought this movie was sort of brave about not, overplaying its hand of being like we're about to follow a gay man living in 1959 uh-huh. whereas i feel like infamous was so sort of easy in that way because all of toby jones's acting is just like look at these bigots that i'm gonna change their mind about me by the end of this scene mm-hmm. you know whereas um i think psh has a harder challenge because it's not necessarily inspiring him 
like to think that because he's not little, as you said, he's a right. normal sized man with the only thing really sort of weird about him is his his mannerisms and his voice, of course. Yeah. But again, they don't treat that as like as big of a thing. Everything's sort of more subdued in this version of Truman Capote. It felt more real to me that we're seeing him like on these tears. Like it cuts to him at these parties when he's clearly back in New York. He's like, I was hanging out with Jimmy Baldwin. I tell you about Jimmy Baldwin, you know, like he's got this book about it. Of course, it's going to be controversial, but it wasn't so showing off. It was just him being like, this is how like this is how I do the, you know, uh, extrovert thing. Mm hmm. Why don't you rate this one first? I'm going to land pretty solid good good on this one. Mm-hmm. I think it ultimately like is I mean ultimately is a brilliantly crafted movie with some excellent performances in it especially from Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um and then I ultimately think like by the end of it you will be weirdly sort of like hooked to it and you like want to know how it's going to end and I think it ends very satisfyingly. Yeah. Um okay. I'll give it a soft good good. Uh I think Hoffman carries it sort of in spite of Miller at times. Like when I think about Moneyball, I think about, uh, you know, Brad Pitt driving in the dark and that Brad Pitt performance just not not transcending Miller's iron grip to show you like what a man is kind of movie. But like you really you can you can watch Hoffman up to the up to the closing credits, just the way he moves um how still he is in comparison to the actual Truman Capote. And then when he does move, what it's, uh, what it evokes. Yeah. I'll give it a soft good. Good. Nice. All right. Now infamous, infamous on the other hands. Yeah. Which we've already talked about a lot. So this movie takes a stylistically it's uh stranger and a little less. Coherent. It's simply very light. It's light. This movie has a very light touch and theatrical. Right. Um, and with some sort of theatrical artifice in the sort of like fake um, talk show interviews with Gore Vidal and Harper I think a, a horrible of- mistake of this movie is to not know how to write scenes conveying what they needed to convey. So they just had these <laughs> weird sort of like mockumentary. Su- yeah, this mockumentary thing that's going on. I think that was a like a total misfire. Big flub. Um, and yeah, this movie like just. I mean, I texted it to you earlier today when I finished Capote, which was, it's just not as artfully made version of Capote. It's like a very digestible, again, like had Capote not been made, this would have been fine, I think. Mm -hmm. But because it wasn't, it like very, and it very much suffers from the fact that just like the patina on it is like just not as good good like the sets look the sets look like a high school musical compared to just how the stark realism that uh bennett miller achieves and yeah like i mean like i mentioned the uh, toby jones's performance is a lot more based on energy it's a lot more sort of it's, it's more flamboyant it, it, yes it puts forward that the public um truman capote is in some ways the always Truman Capote, but that there was truth beneath that. Let's go around the table and you can all tell me whom you're having affairs with. (laughs) (laughs) 
How do you get your New York lady friends to tell you everything? I figure out what they need and I give it to them. Have you heard about Tracy? <laughs> having your eyes done. Bella's having an affair. No. What? Everybody knows that. Well, I'm sure they do now. <laughs> Never confide in me. Why don't you? Because someday you'll use it. But it also sort of implies that his caring and that his obsession was not the book. It was the guy. Yes. And the book was almost secondary to his romance with Perry, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is an interesting choice, too, because then you're ultimately not looking at because like Philip Seymour Hoffman's Capote is a bad person. And I don't think that. Uh, Toby Jones's Capote is a bad person. Yeah. Despite all his lying and like maybe making things up and stuff like that. Like, I believe that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character like invented a lot of the book, mm-hmm. which is ultimately what the legacy of in cold blood is. Yeah. Um, but this Toby, but Toby Jones, you just don't think that he has the propensity to do that. And maybe, because he told the, it almost apologizes for him the way he tells the narrative to people. Mm-hmm. He sort of like checks it with people and the things they respond to, he keeps and the things that they yeah. don't, he doesn't, mm-hmm. which is like acknowledging the claims of invention, but also sort of excuses them. And then the movie goes on to do a lot of its own invention or supposing. Right. My favorite bit of cross casting that I felt drew the lines between these movies was as the lead detective on the case in infamous it's jeff daniels in capote it is chris cooper i feel like that's the best microcosm for the tones of these movies Uh, that's exactly yeah that's totally what i mean because capote with chris cooper is such an inscrutable figure in almost everything honestly um and jeff daniels is an everyman and also, I think it's a nice parallel, too, about these movies is that Sandra Bullock versus Catherine Keener, like Catherine mm-hmm. Keener, like one of the finest character actors like working today. And then, you know, Sandra Bullock, like as <laughs> right. doing a Southern accent. Yeah. They're opposite movies in a lot of ways, because, I mean, like I said, C- Capote so relies on uh, blankness and like, you know, bring to this what you well, it's will. It's a story of obsession. And infamous, and infamous puts forward in all of Capote's um, performance that you, the audience member see through him at every turn. Like, you know exactly what he's thinking. Um, when in which he's one? Performing, in, in infamous? In infamous when he's performing and why, um, how he's putting his like social graces to bear for his own benefit. Like you, you always know exactly what he's doing. And in Capote, I don't think you ever quite do. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a, I feel like Capote is a movie about obsession and Infamous is a love story. Yes. It's like, ah, oh, it's a shame that while working on this incidental thing, I fell in love with a killer. Like, that's the, that's the drama of Infamous. A contact wearing killer for MI6. Right. What do you think of Craig? He's just so different from, uh... Clifton Collins. Clifton Collins Jr., um... Because Clifton Collins is so, like, unassuming that, like, the whole trick of the movie is convincing you that he could kill someone. Yeah. Whereas, like, Daniel Craig has made a living <laughs> off killing people for the past 10 or 15 years as an actor. And he's so hulking by comparison. And that stupid little backstory about, I just wanted to play my guitar for my dad, but he blamed everything on me. It was so, like, 
that's not what the, you get from In Cold Blood about like what consumed this man. Mm-hmm. I would have to say too, I think it was a big miss if you're thinking about the the sociological textures in this story um, that Perry Smith was half native. And there right. is something like very, um, and you know, w- with his family backstory and like how maybe he would have been looked at by the average white Kansan. And you look at Clifton Collins and you, and you see someone who is like, who's trying to pass in so many different ways. Right. And you look at Daniel Craig and you're just like, well, that's just a, a heavily muscled British man wearing brown contacts. You really didn't like Infamous, I could tell. I liked I it at like first. It. I liked, but. Just because there is such a superior, like, I liked it until I saw Capote. Because, like, Infamous never asks you to make, like, to visualize and sort of think and reconcile with the idea of, like, oh, my God, like, what if you understood why someone killed someone? Like, what would that do to you? Yeah. Like, Infamous never asks you any big questions. It's just a lost love story. Mm -hmm. So it made me annoyed in retrospect I don't know. Yeah. So I'm going to have to land on bad, bad. I think if you're talking about them in tandem, what infamous has for you is if you want to know how Truman Capote, the post in cold blood public figure, if you want to project him back on what he did, um, it is interesting. And I think, I don't know. I think worth a watch. I'll give it like a soft, good, bad, I mean, like, I don't, but I mean, like, there's no reason to re to rewatch it. No. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, it proposes a very simplistic and very sort of lighthearted reason that Capote never wrote again and that drank him and then drank himself to death. And he, I mean, it argues a broken heart, whereas yeah. Capote, what you're, what you're getting into is a movie of pretty intense trauma and like self-discovery. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason that he sort of mm-hmm. never writes again. Yeah. So now we're moving on to movies about magic. Absolutely. The people who who uh, perform it. Yes. Is magic and, science? Is it ghosts? Is it simply never explaining the trick? Let's talk about The Illusionist and The Prestige. Absolutely. So basically you have two movies about men trying to outdo other men by using magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so the first one we've decided we'll talk about is The Illusionist, which is from... 2006. 2006. 2006. Yeah. I remember when this came... I was working at the video store when this came out on DVD, and I remember, like, having liked The Prestige, so why wouldn't I like The Illusionist? I could think of a couple of reasons. And I picked it up, and I put it in, uh, read it on DVD, and I watched it, and I was like, huh, that wasn't as good. (laughs) You were like... Rufus Sewell's going to be a star. <laughs> yeah. uh, Hollywood's coming knocking and they're looking for Rufus. So this is a movie uh, set in Vienna with Edward Norton playing an illusionist named Eisenheim. Um, and Eisenheim the illusionist, the yeah. titular illusionist. Yes, indeed. Uh, who has run afoul of the Austro-Hungarian uh, crown prince played by Rufus Sewell uh, and his sort of like Chief Constable slash henchman played by Paul Giamatti for the first person I think of when I want an attempted uh, Austro-Hungarian accent. Um, And Jessica Biel, the second person I think of when I want an attempted (laughs) Austro-Hungarian accent. 
so the, so the accents first off so you have like edward norton and rufus sewell i mean sewell like is not famous nor will he ever be but he's like not a bad actor no i, I like and he clearly has like some training under his belt and then you have like edward norton again a world-class actor but then you have like Giamatti, who, like, yes, he tries very hard. He's in the same, like, he's in the same party as, like, a lot of, like, great actors. But he's certainly, like, not the best actor. He's in the outskirts of the party. He's on the outskirts of the party. It's like, who invited Giamatti, but, like, nobody kicks him out kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And then you have, like, the eldest sister from Seventh Heaven being, like, the love interest. Um, And then the whole thing is sort of, like, Filmed with an old timey camera, like using sepia and like shadow turned all the way up. <laughs> yeah, written down uh, who put the vignette Instagram filter on all the flashbacks. Right. It all has the, and it, I mean, it won an Oscar for cinematography or was nominated or something. It did? Yeah. I wasn't I mean, in it the just Academy uses a then. lot of those like dumb Scorsese, like, uh, you know, little circle zoom out kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, what it puts forward in the vid- in the vignette Instagram filter is that uh, Eisenheim and Jessica Biel have been have this fairy tale backstory of uh, uh, the the princess or like the wealthy wealthy upper class uh, daughter and the table maker's son, the book right. cabinet maker's son, carpenter's son. He's like a carpenter's son, yeah. Um, have uh, have this puppy love going way back. And um, they're destined to be together, except for the class system gets in the way. They're not destined to be together. Uh, He goes and roams the country and, or roams the world and maybe learns magic. And she becomes betrothed to the crown prince of the empire. She she basically gives him like a very sort of medieval quest. Mm -hmm. And the quest is make us disappear. To demonstrate how nature's laws may be bent. Tonight, I give you I've seen you perform. Perhaps you'll give me a tip. How can we help you, Inspector? The Crown Prince plans to attend your performance tonight. I need a volunteer from the audience. Someone not afraid of death. Do you know me? No. It's also in that same, like, Christopher Nolan, M. Night Shyamalan school of thought where it, like has a twist ending and like knows it has a twist ending and like almost bores you to tears on the way to this twist ending yeah. because it's such a stuffy again, masterpiece theater type version of what is a more entertaining movie. It's sort of the Wyatt Earp to uh prestigious tombstone. Masterpiece theater, yes, but also like this Vienna is a very American Vienna. Oh like, yeah, it's, it, this was very clearly like, not made by the English. Uh, like Neil Berger is an American director. <laughs> I think that's right. clear to me in the cast. And a pretty like, if I remember right, his resume is like pretty lowbrow. Should Let me see? find it. Ah, Limitless, Divergent. Right. These are not great films. Like Limitless is a premise movie. This is ultimately a premise movie. Um, a very basic problem for me in this movie, so much is spent in the uh, very contrived fairy tale romance between Norton and Beale 
This is one I could not get past the very obvious age difference between them when they're on right. screen. Like Norton is a 45 year old man and she is 30. <laughs> and so like, if that, yeah. And so you had this thing where it's like, you saw, she's like mid twenties and he's different like actors pushing 40. You saw different actors play them as teenagers. And then, so these star-crossed lovers as adults, yeah, they it's were maybe striking. like four years apart it's, as kids. And then they become 30 years apart as adults. <laughs> it's rather striking. And I think Norton, I got to say there is, in some ways there is not a lot for him in this part because this movie's idea of a magician is just like rather lame. As he, as well, the, as he spirals into darkness and sunken eyes, I think Norton is more at home. But at the beginning where he's supposed to be like this like fresh faced, like, would you like to see an orange tree blossom? Uh, that's not a good use of Edward Norton. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, like, the idea, and we'll talk about this later, of, like, being a good showman and, like, whatever, and, like, what these movies endeavor to tell us about, like, being a magician. This movie always keeps us as an audience member. Like, even when Paul Giamatti, like, finds, like, the book about how to do the orange tree trick, it's never explained the way the prestige endeavors to explain, like, tricks and why people would want to do them. Right. And then, I mean, it explains the final trick, too, and that's sort of... A trick in of itself, how it's explained. Right. But this one, yeah, it's just sort of like us seeing things that could easily be rendered with CGI in 2006. Yeah. And then like Paul Giamatti, like, st- like that's what he does in this movie. He just like stifles awe. He's just like very good at going like, oh, <laughs> like that's, he makes that noise like at every turn. Oh. <laughs> Even in the funny. final sequence where he's like piecing it all together, he's just sort of like, like, he wants to, like, give it, like, a round of applause there in the train station, but he all he can muster is, oh. That's funny. Um, yeah. I think Norton's best moments and probably the most interesting dynamic in the movie is the um, sort of jabbing of the class pitchfork into the back of the crown prince. When Eisenheim goes to perform for all for the aristocracy, and he's sort of, like, in his very uh, magician preamble to the trick questions uh whether the store the sword can be pulled from the stone he's like made this sword stick to the floor um is divine right the thing will do it and that pisses off rufus sewell that's by far i think the most interesting character dynamic in the movie it like has some good tricks up its sleeve it's just never endeavors to explain them so it's not like a clever movie yeah to me that's the unforgivable part of the movie honestly is that in the big sort of like usual suspects rip off here's how he did it kind of yeah. montage is that they never care to explain how this man who was ultimately arrested and put on trial for uh, conjuring the dead never <laughs> explained how he created those visuals. Right. Well, that's the thing. He, the aha Kaiser Soze moment at the end is explaining his motive, but not like showing evidence that he did it. Yes. It's showing evidence how they, like, framed the prince, but it's never explaining any of the magic. It's true. Giamatti is having a, uh, a oh. circumstance. <laughs> His up is entirely circumstantial as to Ed Norton's motivation. Right. I mean, this is just him thinking of why he must have done it, but he can't prove that he did it. Even no. if he was still, like, even if he caught him on the train, he has nothing on him. Right. And... If we can, can we get into, we're getting into the spoilers, right? This is a 10-year-old movie. Okay. Um, the 
the pivotal um, introduction of suspicion scene, which is so the big trick. I, I guess fast forward two minutes if you don't want to hear this for some reason. If you want to check out the Illusionist, is that. A, a framing of Rufus Sewell, who has a history of domestic battery. Uh, he follows Jessica Beale drunkenly down an alley with his sword uh, when she's like, I'm leaving you. Um, that scene is so suspicious. Like you, when the minute you're watching it, you like, you know that like, that's where the, I mean, that's where the magic trick happened. Right. It's just not, you realize good. that that's like the, the magic trick of the plot. Yes. Yeah. But then, like, it's pretty convincing later when she's dead. Sure. But at the same time, yeah, it's... You know that, like, something's not right. Whereas yeah. in The Prestige, like, it takes you a while to figure out the rules of the movie. Frankly, I don't think it gives you enough Rufus Sewell to convince you to create a red herring that he did kill her and he's hiding it. Because that's right. the thing that you have to believe. And the movie should have spent a little more time there if it wanted you to believe that she was actually dead, which... Uh, She's not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So where do so, you land with this one? I don't know. Like, I watched this movie in two parts because I took a nap about an hour in. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty, like, telling thing that something is... In a plot-driven thriller about magic. Is not a plot-driven thriller. You're going to um, want to watch it in one part. And if you're watching it in two... But I think, I think it's, like, an interestingly made movie... So I think I'm going to have to land on a soft, good, bad. I think it's going to be just a bad, bad for me. Just a bad, bad. Just a bad, bad. I mean, I didn't, I didn't hate it. And I mean, like this, uh, this might be one of our, our sort of like least original twin pairings. Like I, I think everyone, cause both these movies are fairly high profile period piece. Magician movies were rare. Um, you know, a lot of people were like the prestige and the illusionist. Hmm. But, like, this one is just... We could talk about The Prestige for another hour. And this movie right. is just sort of a trifling, light little thing that, like, was never Yeah, really... I mean, it feels like a decently made masterpiece theater. But it's certainly not, like, a big-budget Hollywood movie. Yeah. It's Whereas be. The Prestige has no doubt in its mind. So we had this funny... Was it you and me that had this funny conversation after we both watched The Prestige that I was like... Do you think Christopher Nolan, when he set out to like make this movie, said, you know what? Magicians are all right. I'm kind of a magician. <laughs> yes, we were having that conversation. But when we were having it, and it felt so true, I did not remember that this movie basically articulates in dying Hugh Jackman monologue the same thing. So it's definitely in there. Right, yeah, so Christopher Nolan is obsessed with magicians, and he thinks that they are, like, the coolest things because he thinks they're basically the modern-day filmmakers or something. Yes. And from the outset of this movie, so what I liked about The Illusionist is that, like, the idea of magic and that sort of showmanship is still sort of niche when the movie begins, and then people become fascinated with it because it's not, like, a trope. Right. Whereas in the world that Christopher Nolan creates, like people know what magicians are and there's like a magician community and they're all doing sort of similar tricks and trying to like outdo each other. Mm -hmm. So quick synopsis, uh, turn to what turn of the century London, more or less, uh, yep. two magicians. Well, I would say late, I would say late 19th century. Late Vic or Victorian London. Yeah. Um, the great Danton. 
Uh, the great Anton. <laughs> Robert Angiers played by Hugh Jackman and Alfred Borden played by uh, Christian Bale are um, the great Danton. It's too French. <laughs> it's French. Uh, it's sophisticated. They start out as uh, rival magicians uh, from the time that they are both um, assistants uh, for another man uh, who Alfred Borden says is not ambitious enough. The act that they're doing at the time is uh, putting Hugh Jackman's then wife, tying her wrists and then putting her in like a, a water tank to escape. Um, the sort of like their principal argument and like the seeds of their lifelong rivalry is that Borden is a very ambitious man in the sense that he thinks risk and sacrifice should be at the cent- the center of every trick. And Angier is more of a consummate, like theatrical professional. He really wants to sell it to the audience and the payoff for him is the audience. Um, in Borden's sort of zealous ideas of like what magic should be, uh, he maybe ties up Angier's wife a little bit tighter than she should have been tied up. She drowns, dies. They are forever set on a collision course to define the meaning of true magic uh, or magician hood, shall we say. And right. uh, just to kill the fuck out of each other. Just to win. Yes. A real magician tries to invent something new. It's something that other magicians will scratch their heads over. I suppose you have such a trick. Yes, you do. It's the one they're going to remember me for. Yeah, it's interesting. And so then that's what sort of occurs is like one of them sort of takes two step forward, two steps forward. But then because of the rivalry, they're forced to take one step back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that leads them to running into Nikola Tesla for some reason. (laughs) And then the idea of sort of like what real magic is and like what the limits of electricity are. And that's sort of convoluted, but it's David Bowie. So who cares? Absolutely. So actually I think Tesla is almost uh, something that uh, Borden uses to throw Andrews off the scent of his actual trick that becomes one of the maybe let's say the icing of the five twists that end this movie but let's talk about the performances okay because it's literally what i think is interesting about this movie and what is interesting about nolan as a director is that he's found two actors that are very much the roles that they are playing there's christian bales this very scrappy you know, very like physical method sort of actor yeah. who like doesn't care much about the showmanship of it and much about the applause, but just like the grit of doing it. Almost too passionate to do his job well. Right. Whereas on the other side of it, Hugh Jackman literally is the great Danton. <laughs> yeah, you have to assume like in Beauty and the Beast, that's how he introduces himself that way on Broadway. Right, exactly. You know, like, even when he's playing, like, Wolverine, he's just like, oh, I'm a guy with, like, a, a problem, but, like, I'm going to, I'm gonna, you know, muscle through this. Name's but it's, Logan, like, performative. you can call me the Great Danton. Yeah, but my friends call me the Great Danton. <laughs> um, but that, like, really suits the, the rivalry absolutely. between them two, and it's almost like, it's almost becomes a rivalry, too, of what kind of movie star do you like? That's a great do point. Do you like the Christian Bale? Do you like, I mean, do you like the Michael Keaton Batman or do you like the Christian Bale Batman? Do you like the showman or do you like, you know, the more rugged, you know, coming from a long line of like Brando type actors? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that is well identified by you and a really interesting tension in the movie that I think really... So this movie falls between Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Um, you We did not sort of like have the Dark Knight trilogy hanging over us yet as the Nolan monolith with Inception coming. Like this is a very easily right. forgotten movie. Um, but I think if you think about how ambitious it is in just a little over two hours... Um, and what he is doing with actors, there's something here that um, I think is lost in Nolan's most acclaimed work and that he will probably never do again, which is I just think that the actor-to-actor scene writing is excellent. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's ultimately about this obsession and this, this duel that these two men have, and it's not ultimately about sort of like larger, because I think the best, I mean, the best drama comes from throwing two characters into a room, each with the, their, their different set of intentions and expectations and seeing how they duke it out right. and how, what lengths, what tactics they will go to, to get what they want. And like, yes, like that exists in Batman and like, yes, that exists in Inception, but like it's convoluted with so much technical stuff and so much plot that this Concept is like a great and myth. And this is just yeah. two guys who just hate each other and will right. stop at and, nothing. Yeah. And, and it's directed by like one of the most exciting directors of the day. And I think, you know, you'll see sort of this in insomnia memento too, like still has that like nice sheen of again, again, that's like just two men or three characters sort of bumping up against each other. Right. Right. That sort of does get lost the bigger the scope and the more money that people throw at Christopher Nolan. 100%. And you have to give you have to give technical credit especially cuz we were talking about how the illusionist relies so much on CGI parlor tricks. If you're talking about filmmakers as magicians, one of the great things that I think Nolan earns pre say flipping the semi truck over in Dark Knight is just that all of these tricks um are mechanically sound to you yes. the viewer. And that's a right. Big... They're all I mean, of course, they were a lot of them were done with CGI like to make this movie. But he convinces you that they weren't. Yeah. How would a 30 pound rig that you have to crank wine to make a birdcage disappear? It's fascinating. Yeah. Right. But he figured it out in enough of a way that like the audience believes it. Yeah. And enough so that it's horrifying when they get in each other's way and fuck it up and someone's hand gets caught in the machine or like right. when his leg snaps, like all of these things where it's just like, oh, that's very clever. All have this dark <laughs> underside of well, like, and here's how it they're go wrong. technically sound enough, yeah. but they're not safe. Right. No. Yeah. Like the bullet catch like is a cool thing if you pull it off right. But if you don't, you're fucked. Exactly. Well, I think this movie hangs in. It's technically sound. It's a technically sound movie. It's a great setup. But I think ultimately, like, whether or not this is a good, good movie or just a bad, good movie, hangs in the twist. Um, yes. And how rewatchable it is when you already know the twist. Because we both did. Right. Of course. So I think the thing that sort of sucks about watching this movie on rewatch. So the big reveal is that, of course, on one hand... Um, so the, the first twist is that Hugh Jackman has, through the use of Nikola Tesla's machine, invented the system by which he creates a clone of himself every night. And then that's how he's able to get across the theater. Mm-hmm. And then, but like, he also has to kill the clone because there can only be one of him. Yeah. We so should say he, that they've been dueling over this transporting man uh, right. trick. That's the setup to the movie. Yeah. I mean, if you, presumably if you're listening to the spoilers, you know that already. Right. 
whatever. But then it turns out that Christian Bale was the one who like sent him there all along and was like planning that. But then Hugh Jackman like frames him for his murder. But then it turns out that Christian Bale, the whole time, there were two of him. Yeah. And the reason he could do the teleporting man was that there's always been two of him. And he just like that was the trick. The trick was not on stage. The trick was in his life, like pretending there was only one of him and that his assistant, this bearded guy. Fallon, his engineer. Right, is actually just him. Yeah. Which, on a second watch, you realize very quickly that this dude's just in, like, bad makeup. Yes. This is the interesting thing. I think when the big criticism of The Prestige, and I think it comes from the Ebert review, honestly, because I remember Ebert's review of this was just like, you tricked me, you didn't tell me this was a sci-fi movie, I'm mad. And I think part of me bought into that argument but on rewatch, right. that's the interesting part, in my opinion. The trick that does not work is the twin trick. Like, I am, I am well, much I more think, interested... Well, that's my question. Is because he sent him to Tesla. I think what actually happened, after seeing this three times, I think what actually happened is Christian Bale fundamentally misunderstood what he could do with the machine. He created two of him just the way Hugh Jackman was creating two of him every night. But Christian Bale's mind never went far enough to, I need to kill this person. So that was what, and then, cause you see that a little bit in when he's talking to the drunk Hugh Jackman lookalike talking about the biggest mistake I ever made was, was trusting us. someone as my assistant. Mm-hmm. Cause he has so I think what happened, me. cause he's the same guy. He's not a twin. It's the same guy. And he says Tesla. He leads him there. And Tesla knows what machine he's talking about. I just think they find – because that's what the whole movie is about. They each have their own interpretation, their own showman style of a trick. And the trick is not the teleporting man. It's how you use the teleportation cloning machine. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the big difference between the two is that, like, once there was one more Hugh Jackman, he doesn't shoot him. Instead, he's like, do you want to work together? Because you're me, and we have the same goals. But ultimately, they were not. Right, right. Which causes all this drama in Christian Bale. Well, that's the thing, too. That's sort of like the sixth sense thing with the wife. It's like, why do you hate me today? It's like, well, because it's not the right guy. Right, right. It's just like you have Olivia Williams like, come back to me, Bruce Willis. He's like, I'm right here. Actually, I'm dead. (laughs) So on rewatch, it's a little lame that they couldn't come out with a better, come up with like a better system of like delineating their chores mm-hmm. or delegating their chores. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the benefit in some ways is just how tangled it is in the Rebecca Hall, Scar Joe relationships right. with the Bales. Like it doesn't have the, the sixth sense. In some ways, it's the beauty of it and its problem on rewatch is that it's too simple. The scene of Bruce Willis with his wife at dinner, it's just like, well, he's dead. He's not there. But there are so right. many scenes in this one where it's just like, now, which one is that? Now, which one is that? And you're like watching pretty cl- I found myself watching close, wondering about the dynamics that were tearing up this guy's life. Well, that's the thing. And that's what the brilliance of the Bale performance is that only... 
in the last 15 minutes do you realize that he's not giving an uneven performance he's in fact giving two brilliant performances yes but when you are i mean to your point when you're watching it a second third time there are a few times where it like doesn't show fallon's eyes or you like look at fallon's puffy cheeks and you're like i know that that's just christian bale and puffy cheek makeup like that's not an (laughs) interesting character right and he's just so conspicuous he's so conspicuously silent but is he is he conspicuous because you know yes yeah yeah so i think (sighs) the first time this movie got me and it really got the people i watched it with for the first time earlier today okay yeah yeah it's definitely it's a good magic trick of a movie but again when it's explained to you which is its trick uh i mean you don't want to you know how it's done yes which is why this time i found myself so much more interested in the in jackman's dilemma of like what if i'm killing the real me in an interesting way i think this movie somewhere i don't know if Nolan intended this because I think what he intends is the much simpler like ah yes in a movie I am in charge of the prestige the twist like let us begin Um, but I think what's more interesting is that both these guys are looking for a kind of magic beyond magicianship and what they find is tearing apart their own lives and then doing the impossible and like using science to reach like horrifying moral questions about your own life. Like in some ways for right. me, the best twist of this movie on third or fourth rewatch is the Michael Caine line about the sailor drowning. Like that's the best one. Cause that's what like, Wait, which one's that one? You know? So when Jackman's wife drowns, he's like, I had a sailor friend who like drowned for five minutes, didn't cough for five minutes, came back to life. He said drowning was like going home. Um, and then when they are like burying the machine forever he's like do you remember what i told you about my sailor friend and jackman's like yeah you said it was like going home he's like no he said it was the it was agony it was the worst feeling in the world and that's the moment where jackman realizes that he has in sort of like horcruxing himself every night he's been putting himself through like the worst kind of death possible Right. And to me, like, that's almost the most interesting small twist here is like this, this man never realized quite the horror of what he was doing. And the, also the unanswered question is like, is that Hugh Jackman? Like, is that the guy or is that just his, is that somebody else? Is uh, where does the, is the matter just split? Is the top hat, the top hat is the cat, the cat. I don't know. So for that reason, I think it, it answers it, it leaves enough questions open ended about its sort of general philosophy that I think it might be a movie worth rewatching. So I, I think I'm going to land on good, good. I think I will too. I think uh, you are a little bit more because what? Oh, we were talking about Arrival, and you were like, for me, a lot of Nolan movies are just dressed up bad, good. I don't know if I would say the same. I think if you sort of, but if you take sort of like the um, like the snippiest review of this movie possible. I think it still works because it throws five twists at the wall and there's still one for you on the fifth look. The Megapod Volume 2. Oh, we stumbled a bit at first, but... I'm so sorry. I forgive you. This has been such a pleasure. We made it. to you for nearly three hours. <laughs> It's been a good about six movies. It's been a good time. It's been a good time. Um listener, if you've made it this far, 
maybe you should host the show. What's wrong with you? But thanks for doing it. Um, find all our past episodes on berealguys.com. We think some of them are good enough. You could give them a second listen. Or, re- you know, reappraise our uh, You can our reappraise show. our reappraisals. Absolutely. Uh, find us on Twitter. Find the show on iTunes. Uh, subscribe, please. I mean, like, I think one of the best things to grow our audience uh, a year after the first Megapod is subscribing. So do that. Noah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Um, buddy, so good. Pal. We climbed another mountain. I'll see you next time. Until then, pal. All right.